This is Why We Plan, a podcast for business owners and their advisors about how to better plan for the exit from a business. Join us each episode as we discuss different elements of exit planning, including real-life stories, challenges, and opportunities of owners and their advisors. Welcome, everyone, to today's podcast on Why We Plan. My name is John Brown. I'm the founder of BEI. And with me today is Ed Bryan with SRA, an 831B administration company. So you may be wondering, what is an 831B administration company and why do we have them on our podcast? So Ed, that's your first question. (laughs) Thanks, John. (laughs) I I appreciate it. So um, to your point, um, a lot of people on this on this podcast are going to know what a 401k is, right? I'm going to argue virtually everyone in America knows what a 401k is. Sure. Um, most people, to your point, don't know what an 831B is. Um, it's known by many names. Um, captive insurance is, is a very common name, micro-captive insurance. Um, 831B is actually the section of the tax code that a lot of captive insurance companies elect under, right? So much like a 401k where there are tax incentives, you know, for a business owner to set aside money for future retirement, with an 831B, there are tax incentives to set aside money now for future liabilities. So, you know, and and that's what captive insurance is in its essence, right? It allows a successful business owner, an entrepreneur who's threaded the needle to say, okay, we're going to take some money and set it off on the side, um, you know, in a tax advantage structure, and insure for risks that we either are underinsured for or uninsured for with our traditional commercial coverages. Now, the hope is, and we always tell people this, and and this will seem evident to you, John, but the hope is you don't have to have claims, right? The hope is you don't. Just like your ordinary insurance carrier, when you pay your premiums to them, they're hoping you don't have claims, right? They, They want that money or those policies to expire and those funds to become surplus. That's the goal of captive insurance as well. So how does that help a business owner? Absolutely. So let's talk about that. There are multiple ways that a business owner wins, right, with an 831B plan or a captive insurance company. So any premiums that they pay into their captive are a tax deduction or an expense to the business on the front end. So it lowers the taxable income, right, of the business right off the top. So that's a win right there, right? The captive or the 831B plan that they pay those premiums into does not pick those premiums up as taxable income, right? So there's a win there as well. Those funds can be managed while they're while those policies are in force, um, fairly conservatively, right? If you were to look at how insurance companies manage and invest their their premiums or their reserves, mm-hmm. you have to be fairly conservative. But it's an opportunity to have that <clears throat> money grow, right? And then the hope is is that you accrue good underwriting years. Just that, once again, just like traditional insurance, you hope you build up those traditional underwriting years or those good underwriting years, and that you grow that asset, right? Um, and it becomes a very valuable asset to the business owner. And then also as a planner, as an exit strategist, et cetera, it allows you a lot of options down the road. And then in the middle of all of that, John, I guess, sorry to interrupt you there, but the, the big piece that you'll hear us talk about as an 831B administrator is the risk mitigation piece, right? You know, John, I, I, you know, we use a very recent example. If we go look at just the last two years, we look at all of the things that small to mid-sized business owners found out weren't covered by their traditional insurance. Um, You know, out of necessity, we feel like as a business owner, if you've got good margins, you should set aside that money, a little bit of money, right? For a rainy day 
Well, this is a tax advantaged way to do that. And there are a lot of different ways that the business owner wins. Um, but that risk mitigation piece is becoming more and more critical as, as the global economy changes, the political risks that are out there, the supply chain risk. So there's a lot of things in the middle of all of that that really can help protect the business and the cash flow of the business as they're operating. Okay, so that's that's great. So two kind of two follow-up questions. One, I'm assuming that a lot of the premium, the or the money the owner contributes to a captive is used in turn to purchase risk-oriented insurance. Absolutely. Because we don't want to have a $3 million claim that's <laughs> uninsured, right? Right, right. No, absolutely. So, so yes, yeah, so all <clears throat> the premiums that are paid by the business or by the business owner into the captive are used to purchase or procure coverages. You're, you're absolutely correct. Okay, so that's, so that, so then there still is a risk portion that's uninsured and that's what the accumulation of funds is for, hopefully never used, but that's the reason for having this excess funding. Exactly. In the eyes of the IRS as well, I'm assuming. Right. Yes. Okay, so, um, so that takes care of that issue. Well, what happens then with these funds that aren't being used? Are these gonna be available to the owner at some point down the road? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a great question. So uh, the business owner has multiple options, right? So our policies are traditionally one-year policies, just like your ordinary commercial insurance, right? Mm -hmm. So when that policy expires each policy year, the funds minus any claims, or what we call surplus reserve or underwriting profit to that captive insurance company, that 831B plan, right, that they own. At that point, those funds are available. You have three options. One, you can leave the funds there and allow them to be managed, right, and grow. Um, number two, you can loan against the asset. Um, the, you can loan the bulk of the asset back to a shareholder of the captive. Um, you, we have note terms, or you can set up note terms from 60-day bridge loans all the way to 15 to 20-year mortgages. It's an efficient way to lend yourself pre-tax money. Mm -hmm. um, or the third option is the bulk of those funds also become available for a qualified dividend, um, as long as the funds have been in there for at least a year. So when a business owner, if they decide to declare a dividend, it comes out at essentially, you know, what equates to long-term capital gains rather than ordinary income tax. So there's a nice tax arbitrage most of the time there as well for our business owner clients. Okay. That's, that's interesting. So uh, you were talking about risk mitigation. So that's something that is used to reduce risk that's not insurance. Right. So that's part of your program. What tell us what that's all about. Yeah, so so we we've got your traditional coverages, right? So when we think about a business, right? Um, you start to look at general liability and commercial auto and workers' comp and all of your traditional coverages, right? With commercial insurance, the businesses have to have to operate. And then we think about those things that we call unfunded liabilities. They're things that oftentimes are uninsured because there is no insurance out there for it, right? The market doesn't have an offering that's that's competitive or they're flat out might not be coverage mm -hmm. or they're underinsured, right? So let's just take a quick example from 2020, right? A lot of business owners found out that when they were deemed non-essential or their business was non-essential and they were forced to shut down, a lot of them went to their traditional third-party insurers and said, hey, I'd like to file a business interruption claim. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those insurers asked some very simple questions and said, well, have you had a fire or a flood or an earthquake, right? And the answer was, no, I was shut down because of COVID, right? The city shut me down or the state or the county or whatever. Well, most of the time, if not virtually all of the time, those insurance carriers said, well, you can't file a business interruption claim because there's an exemption for pandemics, 
right? And, you know, on page 27 of your policy that you mm -hmm. probably didn't look at as a business owner. And so um, they came to us. A lot of our business owner clients had had, had 831B plans with us and said, hey, tell me about that third party business interruption policy I have with you. And our policies and in, captive, in the captive space in general, most of the policies are written fairly broadly and they're designed to capture the things that traditional policies don't. So within a policy, for example, our third party business interruption policy, it states that for any reason, if your clients, your customers, your patients can't get to you and do business with you, you can file a claim. We don't require that physical triggering event. So we fill in the gaps in traditional policies. Does mm -hmm. that make sense, John? Yeah, and so, but at that point, the owner's using her own money that they previously contributed. It's just coming back to them because you've built, you basically have built up a reserve for yes. things that are not really insurable. Absolutely, you're, you're right there. At the same time, John, there is an element of insurance here uh, where we do pool or we co create co-ops, risk co-ops. So there is some risk sharing, right? So in order to call yourself a captive insurance company, you can't take a dollar out of your left hand and put it in your right and say, I'm self-insuring, right? You can't own 100% of your own risk. You have to have something called risk distribution or risk sharing, right? So if you go back all the way to when insurance companies first started in this country, a lot of times it was groups of people, farmers, et cetera, that were pooling risk, right? They shared a common risk. And so they pooled money together and shared in each other's risk. And that's how insurance companies like Farmers and State Farm got started, right? Mm -hmm. And so we do the same thing, right? In order to, once again, the IRS says in order to elect under, under this tax code, you have to have risk distribution or risk sharing. So we pool all of our clients based on coverages and premium amounts, and they share an unaffiliated third-party risk. Does that make, so the easiest yeah. way I can explain that to you, John, is, you know, if let's say that you have State Farm for your auto insurance and I have State Farm. <clears throat> and I get in an accident and I file a claim, well, State Farm's gonna go out unbeknownst to a lot of people and they're gonna pull a little bit of premium from everyone that has a policy in that given year, and then they're gonna pay my claim. So we are all risk sharing in our insurance endeavors currently, we just may not know it. Interesting, yeah, that is interesting. But what happens if part of that pool, one of the businesses is in a very high risk business, uh, repairing electrical wires, <laughs> Uh, across yeah. the country, maybe in the force of California or something like that. Uh, do you group, do you have different risk categories? That absolutely. You yeah, absolutely. So we, so, so yes, we do. And we segment risk out, right? And so, so we're pretty, pretty thorough in the way that we, we pool this risk. We, our goal is not to increase the exposure or the risk of the participants in, in a program like this, right? Mm -hmm. So risk sharing is, is required, but we do it in a very similar way that traditional insurance carriers do is that it's on a pro rata basis based on the amount of premium you put in. And, and to kind of quantify that, just to give you an idea, you know, for every hundred thousand dollars that comes in, you know, on a given year, you could look at maybe anywhere between 200 and maybe a thousand dollars in unaffiliated third-party claims that you would pay, right? So, so the risk is, is there, but it's not something that you're worrying about all of your premium going to unaffiliated third-party claims. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Okay. So um, a couple of other questions. One, there's been, I don't know how long, you would know how long ago this whole issue of captive, abusing the captive insurance uh, planning process uh, rose, but I've, I've heard about it. Other advisors have heard about it. And so they tend to shy away from even talking about captives. So 
Apparently that you're not sharing that. <laughs> oh, no, that's that's a good question. Though. So, so let's talk about that. Right. That's that's the thing that's out there. And, and, and I would say that any time that there is a tax advantage right to, attached to a program, um, whether it's R&D credits or conservation easements or opportunity zones or captive insurance, the IRS looks at it closely. Mm -hmm. Right. And it has to be done correctly. Right. And if it's not, then you're going to find yourself on the wrong side of the IRS. <laughs> And so consequently, um, there have been some bad actors in this space previously that were doing some things that were frankly significantly out of line. So to kind of give you an idea, the IRS, the tax court has, has listed out what they call a four-part test or a four-part barrier to entry. That risk distribution piece I mentioned to you was one of those four. Mm -hmm. And basically there's this litmus test that you have to apply to your captive to ensure that you're doing it in the proper manner, right? And, and if you're not doing that, then yeah, you absolutely should be worried about it. Um, and at the same time, we view the scrutiny and the increased exposure on the tax code as a good thing. You know, if you go back to the 401k, when it first came out, not a lot of people knew how to use it correctly. There were things going on that would never fly today. Mm -hmm. And then the IRS came in and started to issue some safe harbor rulings, et cetera, with the 401k. So we view 831b following a similar trajectory. We, we actually welcome the, the scrutiny because it gives us additional guidance. Not only does it tell us what to do, but it tells us what not to do. Um, so a little bit about, you know, our legal team, just so, so you're aware, our legal team are all former IRS prosecuting attorneys or lead counsel in the captive insurance space that are in private practice now. So if you were to go Google 831B, right, and you read about some of these tax court cases, odds are most of those attorneys that represented the IRS are now in private practice and part of our legal team. So yes, you have to do it right, but as long as you do it right, I would argue that you're not increasing your exposure with the IRS, we're just managing your risk more efficiently. Interesting. Interesting. So final question, how do our exit planning advisors, how would you suggest they use 831B captive insurance companies in the planning process or the, the exit process? It's a great question. So, so, you know, we talk a lot about risk mitigation and risk management, and, and that's kind of the, the primary benefit. But to your point, John, you get to have some fun on the back end, right? There, there are a lot of next level planning strategies that your exit planners, um, that your succession planners can take one of these assets and implement into a succession plan or an exit plan, right? I mean, the most straightforward thought would be set one of these things up five or 10 years before the, uh, a business owner wants to exit the business, fund it, you know, hopefully you have good underwriting years and you get to a point where five or 10 years down the road, you might have, you know, five, 10, 15, $20 million in there and you can ride off into the sunset, right? I mean, that's that's the dream, right? And we have advisors who use that as a simple strategy long-term, right? And then we have others who say, okay, well, we're gonna take one of these things and we are going to use it to facilitate a buy-sell agreement. Maybe mom and dad own a business and they decide they want to sell it to the kids, but they don't want the kids to have to go out and get a loan. They can put together a buy-sell agreement, structure it with the advice of their succession planner, their exit planner, and, um, they can basically carry the note because they know they've got this asset over here on the side and they're not dependent on squeezing every single cent out of that asset, right? Mm -hmm. Out of the business. Um, yeah. So there are a lot of different ways you can take this. It becomes an incredibly powerful tool down the road for business owners. And the biggest thing that we talk about is it gives them options, right? <clears throat> um, you know, I've got a, I've got a business owner client that I'm thinking of right now who said, I don't have anybody to sell my business to. Um, I am my own business. His name is the business. He said, when I'm here, you know, it's worth maybe $20 million a year. If I leave, it might not be worth anything. 
his goal is he's going to set aside money, you know, working with his advisor for the next 10 years. And he's probably going to close up shop, shop and walk away with this yeah. asset. Yeah. So there are a lot of different ways to take this, John. Okay. So a couple of other things. Um, it strikes me that you need to have a certain amount of premium payments going in on a consistent basis every year to make this economically worthwhile. What's that? What is, I'm sure it's a, you know, yeah. there's a broad range here, but what, what's your general sense of that? There is, and, and you're right. And it, it really depends on where you're at as a business owner. You know, the business owner in California faces different issues than say the business owner in Montana or in Florida, right? They have different risk profiles as well. Mm -hmm. um, what I would tell you is this, just as a general rule, and I'm going to talk first about gross revenue real quick. If we look at a business that's doing north of a million dollars a year in gross revenue and has healthy margins, this could be something they could look at. You know, we have clients that do from a million to 200 million in gross revenue. So that's a massive delta, I realize. But I would tell you on, on average, clients, if they can set aside somewhere north of $100,000 into one of these uh, mechanisms for this risk mm -hmm. mitigation and then all of the fun stuff that comes after, it usually makes sense. And our program like ours, John, is structured to where we realize there are going to be ups and downs in the business cycle. So let's say that you're having your best year ever. Well, it makes sense to set a little bit more aside now. And then let's say next year you're going to buy a competitor out or you need to build a new facility and you don't have quite the same amount of funds to set aside. That's okay. That's why we always look at the gross revenue because really what we're trying to protect, John, is the gross revenue or the cash flow of the business. And so that's why we base a lot of our premium numbers off of that gross revenue number. Okay. Um, second question is, it seems like some industries would be more favorable for a captive than others. For example, a dental practice, not so much. Uh, a construction company, maybe a lot. I mean, so yes. in risk profile and contribution amounts and so on. So yeah, so John, uh, ironically enough, we actually have a dental protection program for dentists. So, so we have quite a few dentists that are clients. Um, so with that being said, um, I would tell you, you're, you're right on construction, right? We were very, very popular in the construction sector because that's very much a boom or bust, right? They're either building or they're not. Um, medical, we've got a lot of people that are that own practices, right? So dentists, doctors, um, you name it, right? That's very popular. And then entrepreneurs in general, you know, our argument, John, is that no one has any shortage of risk if they're a small to mid-sized business owner, right? It doesn't matter if they're a chiropractor in Florida or a construction company owner in Denver, Colorado right? Mm -hmm. You still have risk, especially after the last few years, but our underwriting team does a great job benchmarking and underwriting each individual business. And I would tell you this, John, every year we come across a handful of clients where we look at your gross revenue, the potential premiums you could set aside, and we'll raise our hand and say, hey, we might want to wait, right? It, you know, it might not make sense yet. The biggest thing for us with these is timing, right? The timing has to be right because the client has to win. Right. Um, these aren't rocket ships, but they have to be done right and they have to be worthwhile for the client. And so our team does a very thorough job on the front end to make sure that, you know, if a client commits to this, that it's really going to be in their best interest long term. And our hope is that they'll use it long term. Yeah. Anything I haven't covered that's a burning issue that we should talk about? No, I think, you know, I think you touched on it. I guess one quick point of emphasis um, when we talk about the IRS and the IRS scrutiny, because that's what I know advisors get antsy about um, and they're right. concerned with, because a lot of times if they bring captive insurance to a client, it's one of their best clients, right? It's, it's, it's somebody who's important to them. <clears throat> um, the IRS has, has looked at these things. They've, they've given us some guidance. 
Um, there was a recent court case, John, that just came out in the fourth quarter of last year where a business owner um, had a captive insurance company. The IRS said, hey, this looks like tax evasion, right? They took it to court and the taxpayer said, no, we're going to go all the way, right? We, we feel like this is insurance. Um, we, we're doing it for the right reasons. Yes, there's a tax benefit, but this is why we're doing it. Well, the IRS brought in some insurance experts and they said to the IRS, well, yeah, this is insurance. And if you keep pushing, you're going to lose. And so the IRS actually dismissed this case at the end of last year and walked away. And so for us in the captive space, that is probably the biggest news we've seen from a legal standpoint in the last five to six years. We view that as a, as a high watermark, as an indicator is, yes, there's a right way to do it. Um, the taxpayer has a right to participate in a transaction like this and we'll help you do it the right way. Excellent. Well, I think this is some insightful advice um, and we like to bring experts like ed into the conversation and ultimately i guess that's why we plan thanks john thanks a lot ed thanks for joining us be sure to tune in for our next episode if you'd like more information on better ways to plan for the future please visit exitplanning.com